0: You're listening to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lexington podcast. Take a moment to center yourself in the space and enjoy this week's sermon. Today's reading is the Hymn of Ra, which was adapted from the tombstella of King Wahonk the II. Pharaoh of the 11th dynasty of Egypt from 2108 to 2059 BCE. I'll save you the math that's almost 4,000 years ago. (laughs) You'll notice that the translator took some interesting liberties with modern English in this translation. Accept me, Ra, before you go, before I go, I pray. Do polychromatic Dawn threads coat you like the tiny coruscating disc sewn into a sequined dress? Bring me to the breast of the night. Let me embrace stars, cuddle, obsidian cosmos ancestors. They honor you, Ra, like I do. We sing your praises when you rise. We weep whenever you duck under the earth. Embrace me like a mother, O eternal night. Fold me like a black origami flamingo, forever protected by dark paper, dark praise. Let all be run by your rule, Ra. I am your deputy. You made me Lord of life, undying. Hand me over to the hours of day and night. Time is my bulletproof vest. I am the nursling of early dawn. I am the nursling of night's early hours, a child of the dark. Midnight skies move over my skin. Black-limbed angels of unburdened air, ardent guardians, keep me close. But I fear the bulls with backward horns. O hula hoop of night, eye of raw, unremitting rage, you are my protection. Discover me as your gift.
1: I Continually marvel at how human beings pause to honor the seasons for generations and generations and generations. So who wants to hear the real story of Horace? The sky god of Egyptian mythology. The one you heard earlier was, well, an amalgamation. I made it up. If I'm being blunt, Egyptian mythology is at best R or NC 17 rated. (laughs) Much of it is X rated. It's the most wild and explicit mythology I've encountered. I'm also mindful that I'm approaching it as someone in 2023 living in a society that still has a good dose of puritanism informing it. (laughs) I've often wondered how cultures like the Romans, Greeks, Egyptians, and so on would view us here in the United States in 2023. It's a fun thought experiment. We'd be at once technological sorcerers and completely repressed. But anyway, the story of Horus is not really something you tell to our children before they go off to their classes. But I feel it's still an interesting story, with a few omissions to share with you now. If you want the completely unabashed graphic Egyptian mythology, it is out there for you to read. It is a trip. But the story goes like this. Horus was an important deity in Egyptian mythology, as were all the deities in our story today. Their roles and functions, that part was true. Horus throughout time would become a central deity. He was a sky god representing the sun and moon. It is said that one of his eyes was the sun and the other was the moon. He had become associated with Pharaohs. And during the rise of the Roman empire, Horus and his mother Isis were nearly interchangeable, almost the same. Gender became fluid with Horus as with so many of the ancient deities. The son of Isis and Osiris, it is a very long and winding tale of betrayal, murder, and magic before Horus is even born. It involves the god Seth, who was indeed a god of chaos and violence and the desert. And while Horus's father Osiris ruled Egypt, his brother Seth became jealous. He murdered his brother and dismembered him, burying his limbs in the four corners of the kingdom. Seth ruled the kingdom with cruelty, exacting suffering upon the people and the other gods for his own amusement. Now Horus's mother Isis set out on a mission. She went to find the remains of her husband Osiris. She journeyed far and wide across the kingdom, searching for him. Slowly but surely, She found the scattered limbs and she put Osiris back together. Now hold on to your seats here. She resurrects Osiris by stitching him together. Our very own ancient monster of Frankenstein. And Osiris is alive, but only for one day and one night. Sometimes it's longer, but it gets muddy here. For our purposes today, it was only one day and one night. And during this time, this one day and one night, Isis wanted to conceive an heir to the throne so she could depose her brother, Seth. And yes, if you're keeping track, Seth, Isis, and Osiris were all siblings. It was a common thing in Egyptian mythology. Anyway, she hoped to conceive an heir, but there was a problem. And to put it this way, not all of Osiris was found. And you can see why I didn't tell everyone earlier. (laughs) So Isis and Osiris used magic to eventually conceive. Great. Osiris dies or disappears or something. He's no longer part of the story after this. Seth gets wind of this and starts looking for Isis, fearing the rumored unborn king to depose him. Boy, does that part sound familiar. Isis hides in the Nile River Delta until it's time to give birth, and it is said that when her son Horus was born in the Nile River, the river flooded and brought rich fertile soil to the entire land of Egypt. And every year when the river would indeed recede and flood back and forth, the grand drama of the birth of Horus was being reenacted by the gods. In other myths, Horus was the son of the cow headed goddess of life, partying, dancing, music, motherhood, Hathor. Every evening he'd fly into her mouth, and every morning he'd be reborn. And there are many other myths. But back to our original one today Horus is born, the Nile floods, and Seth knows something is up. Horus grew up into an adult, and when the time came to challenge his uncle for the throne, But even at this point in the story, there are variations. The one that's most commonly told and found is that when he came of age to depose his uncle, they agreed to a boat race with boats made of stone. They went off to build their boats of stone and prepare for the race. The day of the race came and bam, the race began. Now Seth's boat immediately sunk into the Nile. But Horace's boat sailed smoothly and finished the race. Horace won and was now pharaoh. Now how does a boat made of stone sail smoothly? Horace cheated. <laughs> he built a wooden boat and painted it to look like stone. And so, roughly around the winter solstice, ancient Egyptians would pause to acknowledge the birth of Horus and the restoration of the rightful ruler of Egypt. The end. Now that's the tame version of the story. The variations in graphic depictions are kind of hard to resist once you go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> and really, I never knew how nitty-gritty and graphic Egyptian mythology could be. Looking back, It feels all quite romanticized. Also, my only other major interactions with Egyptian mythology involved my undergraduate years as a theology student. Every now and then, Horus would get brought up. And there's a theory that Jesus of Nazareth is the same as the Egyptian god Horus. I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but no. Horus was not born of a virgin, as you just heard. He didn't raise anyone from the dead. He wasn't crucified, in fact, he never died. He wasn't born on December 25th, and the rumor he had 12 disciples only came about in the 19th century. His father, Osiris, the dismembered and reanimated God is the one that has something in common with Jesus, being what's called a dying and rising deity. And there are so many of them. With this winter solstice only a few days away, we pause, To hear this story, maybe for the first time. Not to give homage to those deities unless you are a modern Egyptian god worshiper, and there are some in our world. But for most of us, it's to hear yet another story of conflict, devastation, hope, and rebirth. I find myself looking to the solstices and equinox these days with a split heart. There is something inherently beautiful about the winter solstice about getting close with the dark around us, feeling the cold air, watching life pause, and then wrestling with the notion that the solstice, the day after which the days get longer and longer, lead to the coldest of months in winter. The natural explanation for the season is beautiful and enough. And yet, these stories. These tales that have endured the civilizations which birthed them are still alluring. For the Egyptian myths, it's about the gritty details, the ones that shock the stereotypical buttoned-up American attitude. And I really think that the raw details matter here. And I think if you look closely at all the good myths that we hold on to, even the ones that permeate our society, you can see humanity on full display isis hides in the nile river delta until it's time to give birth and it is said oh wow my sermon is wrong (laughs) when you look at these details we'll just wing it (laughs) a good myth allows us to get into the muck of life that's the point to get absolutely filthy in the muck of life, and to learn something about who we are. There's nothing sanitized about this story, and there's nothing sanitized about any of the ancient Egyptian deities or many many of the deities that have lived and existed and died throughout history, just like life. Try as you may, it will never be fully sanitized. Life has a way of showing up for us again and again whether we want it to or not. And it's real, it's present, it's not always pretty. So here we see a story of a brother turned for lack of a better word into a dictator, a despot, a ruthless ruler who carved out his own path to power and craved it and would do anything, even murder to get it. Now, I don't need to tell you about the real world applications of this, do I? Whether it's across our world right now, or right at home, or in ages past. But that, so too, it's not just about murder and power and craving it. It could be that family member who's rejected us, or the person we've met who've isolated us. Maybe we've even been the one to be in that position, to crave power, to isolate people, to reject them. And we could stop there with this story, right? We could stop there and rail against the world as it is, but then Isis comes into the story and she searches throughout the kingdom. In the story, it was the remnants of her lost love that she was looking for. But really it was the pursuit of hope, tangible hope, real hope. That's the thing about hope. It's one of those things that I say often as a minister, right? And I believe it wholeheartedly. Real enduring hope is something that we seek out. It doesn't just appear. It can require immense effort, and it doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always make us feel secure, but it allows us to keep going in life. ISIS found her hope. Then she waited, hiding in the Nile, wondering if she would, she would find that hope if it would endure. And that's the other thing about hope, especially this season, it asks us all to wait. And then a new birth, a new opportunity, new something will present itself. In the story we heard it did, the birth of Horus. But we know that the story isn't over there because the journey of hope can feel an ending, never resolved. Hope needs to be nurtured and grown continually. In the story, when Horace came of age, the time was right. Lifetimes surely passed, and even then the stakes were still high. Why? Because Horace could fail in his quest, right? But he doesn't. He wins. He wins with a lie, painting a wooden boat to look like stone. So Seth is defeated. He retreats to the desert. The kingdom is restored and they all live happily ever after. The end, right? right? Here's where I want us to briefly dwell. This is not a modern fairy tale or a Disney story. The day is one with deceit, with what we might call cheating. And yet, I still find myself celebrating the victory of the good over evil. Now I don't know about you, I find myself wondering, just briefly, if it was still a victory for the good when deceit is used. And I think therein lies the power of the myth, the moral question. I don't expect all of us to be in turmoil over this, right, racking our hearts and souls over it, or to question times in humanity's history when a victory for the values we hold was accomplished with plenty of gray areas. Personally, I would contend life is mostly gray areas, but this is why I love these myths, the ones we lift up on solstice and elsewhere in our lives. They allow us to dive into a fantastical world in the muck and wonder. The world is a hard enough place to dwell. Sometimes something so far removed from our daily lives is needed, only to discover the story is so human (sighs) And the story is about us. Modern psychology illuminates this for us. In a paper published in the journal Mental Health, Religion, and Culture, Stephen Walker out of the University of Essex talks about the therapeutic benefits of mythology. And he he says that sometimes something interesting emerges when we engage mythology. The myths we tell or engage or connect with help us communicate and connect emotionally. Maybe with just ourselves, but the hope is that it extends to others as well. In other words, myths and stories are good for you and good for our communities, whether or not you actually believe they happened. Now that is a powerful thing right there. It illuminates why we human beings have had stories to anchor us our entire history, to mold us, to keep us moving in the world. Nowadays, we might not talk about Horus, but we might look at Harry Potter, the Lord of the Rings, Star Trek, Star Wars, or any number of modern mythologies that we geek out about. Because in that, in geeking out about it, right, getting interested, invested in the story, there's an emotional connection. It's no longer the elaborate rites and worship of ancient civilizations. Those days are mostly behind us. And yet the effect is the same. Values, lessons, questions, conflicts. They're communicated to us and others. So, what do we make of the story of Horace on this Sunday before the winter solstice? For me, I connect with the hard won hope, the triumph of the good, the knowledge that new life will always push and pull us to someplace else. But we must wait. The world will be hard, and life is never 100% easy we can still find our way against insurmountable odds and i still have questions any good myth leaves you with questions what are yours the winter solstice always presents us with some truths the good shall endure even if it takes a generation or more the darkness is not always evil Sometimes we need to rest or fight or dwell or hope in the darkness. Sometimes we can be embraced by it and embrace it right back. And the light shall return. It always does. In the adapted poem we heard earlier from the ancient Egyptian, hymn to Ra, it sums it up quite beautifully. Embrace me like a mother, O eternal night. Hand me over to hours of day and night. A child of the dark, midnight skies, move over my skin. Black-limbed angels of unburdened air, ardent guardians, keep me close, discover me as your gift. For the ancient Egyptians, when the Nile was at its lowest, in November and December, they tell a story of new life, that it would eventually triumph over evil, and the waters would flood once more in the coming of summer when winter is vanquished. May you find new life this solstice season. May you search and search and discover and discover. Blessed be. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.ucl.org
0: where you can find more information about our grounds, staff, and upcoming events. You can also subscribe to our e-news there and learn about our virtual service offerings. We'll see you next week.